Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Stopping Jen. Sawtooth Frank. Here we are again doing the Soft Serve podcast. Do you know why we're here again? Because uh, it's another interesting and amazing person we're about to talk to? Yes, and I read a book. You read a book. <laughs> yes, I completed a book. Oh, I usually, thank goodness. Yeah, when I try to read books, I usually fall asleep. Um, I don't finish them, but not this one. Mm. I ripped right through this one. And the book we're going to be reading about is Douglas Wolk's All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. And Douglas took on the monumental task of reading somewhere around 27,000 Marvel comics and then telling us all about that experience. That's crazy. And um, as a big Marvel fan, this thing was a real page turner, this book, <laughs> and I cannot wait to talk about it. All right, let's do and it. I just have to say, I learned so much from reading it and I have so much more respect for Marvel now and even like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like it like put a lot of stuff into focus for me. So anyways, I cannot wait to talk to Douglas about this on the other side of the intro. Great. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Which button? It's this one. Okay. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping Oh, you're going to sing now? I'm going to sing to you again. It's my new superpower. You got your song mojo back? Yes, I did get my song mojo back. Um, Is that your superpower? You know, I have a whole new concept of what superpowers can be after reading Douglas Wolk's book, All of the Marvels. And let's jump into it and say hi to Douglas. Hello, Douglas. Hello, Sawtooth and Jen. How are you doing? Hanging in there like a kitten in a 70s motivational poster. (laughs) Yes. um, Your book um, was published on October 12th. And you you must be very excited after all of that reading and writing you did to create it. (laughs) It took a long time. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I have to say, um, reading reading your book, All of the Marvels, awakened a memory in me. Mm. Um, When I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with Daredevil. That was... That was my superhero. That was my um, comic book I was obsessed with. And So what period of Daredevil would this have been? 
This was back in the, I was it in the mid eighties. Okay. In the mid eighties. And I remember there was a pet store in my hometown. So it was like a bucolic little New England town that had a a pet store, like with the puppies in the window and all of that stuff. And I would go in there and there was a box on the right-hand side of the floor that people must have come in and just dumped their old comics in. And, um, and I used- And what did they use them for? I I think they probably used them to line the bird cages that this guy sold in the pet store, right? So I would go in there on my way home from school um, a couple times a week and root through the box and look for Daredevil comics. And I occasionally would get one. I think somebody was coming there and donating Daredevil mm-hmm. comics into the box. So mm-hmm. I would grab them. They're so smart. And I would read them. And, <laughs> you know, for, just for some time, like, I was just obsessed with Daredevil. I love Daredevil. So I wanted to ask you, um, how did you get into comics and how did you get interested in comics? Oh, wow. Um, my comics origin story goes back to probably the summer of 1979 or so, 78, 79. Uh, I would be visiting my grandparents in the summer and there was a newsstand where my family would send me to like pick up the newspaper every morning and they had a comics rack. And that summer, probably I picked up an issue of Green Lantern, Green Arrow and read it a billion times in a row, decided that I needed to read more. Uh, it ended on a cliffhanger when I got home. I was like, oh, it says you know, next issue on sale, the third week of August. It's the third week of August. Let's go to a newsstand. Let's go to the newspaper store and we can see if and eventually if they have the next issue. And then there was another comic that had that character in it. And then there was another one whose cover looked interesting. And then a few months later, I realized there was a store that sold nothing but comics that was a little bit further down the street. Oh, my gosh. And, <laughs> and uh, before you knew it, I was you know, helpless addict, like slapping my arm, mainlining, uh, mainlining everything. I was mostly a DC kid, Mm. believe it or not. Um, there was a kid who was across the street from me who in fact had a stack of daredevil gateway drug. I'm telling you, (laughs) uh, had a stack. And so this would have been a little bit earlier. This would have been the Frank Miller stuff. And, uh, so he would read my Green Lanterns and I would read his Daredevils. And I started buying more and more and more and made the mistake of never stopping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, by the time I was 13 or 14, I was working in the comic book store. And then you know, by that point, like when once you're getting high in your own supply, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> oh my goodness, um, when you said you were mostly a DC kid at that time, was it because you had tried reading other um, comic producers and you just weren't? into them and those stories weren't grabbing you until you stumbled upon Daredevil or what was it about DC? No, I mean, I think it was more that that was the kind of narrative ecosystem that really spoke to me. Um, it was much more clearly defined. There was a little bit more of a kind of like unified visual house style at that point. Um, there was weird stuff going on over on the Marvel stuff. I mean, I, I enjoyed some of it. I would I would read it, and I started picking up Daredevil, and then I started picking up X-Men, mm. and then I started picking up Spider-Man, and I liked it all. Um, and it wasn't much longer before I discovered independent comics, and mm. then, you know, Katie barred the door. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
That's yeah. so I interesting. Liked, I liked everything. Yeah. yeah. Stomping Jen, you were always a fan of the independent yeah. comics, like well, the Vertigo line. They, well, that's not really things. independent because it was owned by DC. <laughs> oh, okay. But um, yeah, I was more tri- more into the, all the Vertigo comics that the DC produced. Um, and then my brother would read DC. He read all like the Superman and the Batman. And my mother worked with somebody who could get her comics. And she would for years like just bring home comics for us. And it was awesome. <laughs> there were a lot of, in the mid 80s, when I was really getting into it, though, there were also a whole lot of independent publishers who were just groping around at what it might mean to make comics specifically for the direct sales market. Mm-hmm. I mean, the stores that sold comics only and unlike newsstands didn't have to deal with returns. So you could publish more experimental, more arty stuff because you knew if you sold it, it wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, fanographics like Love and Rockets was happening at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aardvark Vanaheim was publishing Cerebus and expanding into some other stuff. Uh, there's an amazing Californian publisher called Eclipse Comics that did really like lovely, interesting, smart, weird things. And th- they're there were so many different kinds of things and it was, it was a really lovely moment to be coming into being a comics reader and seeing just the enormous variety of stuff that there was out there. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I think I kind of, I stopped at daredevil. I never really got beyond it. And, you know, as you talk about in your book, which we're going to get to in a minute, um, Mm -hmm. You know, there there are many entrance points into the Marvel universe and Marvel yeah. comics. And I think I kind of stopped and didn't go further yeah. because I started drawing my own comic strip mm-hmm. at that point Great. in my life. And I spent four years, you know, with friends of mine just every day drawing my own comics. And that's, that's kind of... Wow. Yeah. That's... Go ahead. It's so super random because we were just talking about what comics I read and I yeah. totally forgot that I had totally gotten into some line of comics and I have no idea who made them. Yeah. But they were all based on a girl and it was all they were all gemstones. Do you know what this is? Uh, uh, was it Amethyst Princess of Gemworld? Yes, that's what it was. And her name was so, Amy in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> I totally Amethyst, forgot about so it. So Amethyst was created by a friend of mine. Oh, uh, cool. So no shit. Get, it was Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn and Ernie Cologne. And mm-hmm. Dan Mishkin lived in East Lansing, where I grew up, and shopped at the comic store where I worked, and was just like the terrifically friendly, interesting guy who would come in every week and pick up his comics and talk about the stuff he was working on. And, you know, Amethyst was way, way ahead of its time. It is a magical girl comic that DC was publishing in like 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're still kind of trying to figure out what to do with it. There's an yeah. Amethyst revival every couple of years. Oh, but, for uh, yeah, wow. That's awesome. Did, yeah, I totally forgot about it until you started talking. Yeah. Did you um, did, did you collect them? Or yeah, those? no, oh, no, okay. I did. I probably still, like, I have, I don't know, my brother had my yeah. old comics from my parents' house that they've since sold or whatever and might be in there. I had, like, the first few editions of the Max, which I yeah. don't think was mainstream either. Hmm. Um, but yeah. that was not like that they made into an MTV TV show. Yeah. The Max. Oh yeah, that's right. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Douglas, I want I want you to give us an opportunity to kind of describe your book, All of the Marvels, a journey mm-hmm. to the ends of the biggest story ever 
told. Um, Which I, you will I, never I, say I, the whole title. I know. I, I attempted to kind of summarize it at the beginning, but I just I want to give you a, a shot at just kind of summarizing the project for our listeners and, and what you attempted to do. Okay, so here's my elevator pitch. Yep. Um, the idea is that the comics that Marvel has published since around 1961 there's more than a half million pages of story there, and it's all one story. It is the the largest continuous, more or less self-contained story that anybody has ever created. It is so big that not even the people who are making it have read the whole thing. It is not nobody's supposed to read the whole thing. That's not what you're supposed to. So that's what I did because I wanted to see what it looked like as a story, like what the shape of this gigantic 60 year long ongoing epic looks like when you think of it as, as a single story and as a kind of fun house mirror history of the last 60 years of culture. Do you just like a, do you just like a challenge? Like in terms <laughs> of your, in terms of your work or is it, was there something you're, you're really into comics and this was the challenge and you really just wanted to take this on? I mean, it, it's a stunt. It's Evil Knievel jumping over 50 cars. It's Stephen Merritt writing 69 love songs. Um, I wanted to write about a big body of comics work, and there is no bigger body of comics work than than this. Uh, I like big, complicated things. I talk, uh, in, in the last chapter of the book, I talk a little about how my kid really likes complicated systems. I like complicated systems, too. Like that That is a thing that really appeals to me about this particular story. But there's lots to like about it. There's lots to not like about it, but there's lots to like about it. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit um, about some of the the things that really struck me in going through the book. And I, I think, ironically, we may end up with a bunch of people after reading this book who do want to take on this project yeah. themselves, you know, because... I, 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 I warned them against it. Don't, yeah. don't do it. Because <laughs> um, there's some really, I, I don't know, I felt there were some really profound takeaways that, yeah. that you know, you grabbed from this that we're going we're gonna to talk about. Um, how, how do you, sorry, how do you find them all, right? That was not the hard part. Oh. Um, so... There's an awful lot of stuff that is on Marvel Unlimited, which is Marvel's kind of Netflixy all-you-can-read service. Mm-hmm. They don't have everything, but they've got a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the gaps, you know, I had a bunch of things. Friends had a bunch of things. Tracking stuff down was really not that hard. Mm, that surprises me, actually. Yeah, I'm... I don't know, because you like hear about like, oh, people who like search for like, you know, comic number, blah, blah, blah. The like, you know, the the unicorn uh, comic out there that everyone's looking for or whatever, because it was such a yeah. rare limited I mean, release or whatever. I mean, the, the the unicorns, the super rare things are almost all available digitally now. Yeah, oh, that's like, awesome. That's, that's yeah. yeah. Uh, there are I mentioned, I think uh, there are a few comics that are actually lost that were published in some form, but don't exist at all anymore, as far as anyone can tell. Mm. Um, interestingly, most of those were originally published on America Online. Mm. Mm. <laughs> like, Marvel had a digital comic thing through AOL, and there's a few of those that were serialized there, and now, like, Marvel doesn't have copy, creators don't have copies, 
can't get them on AOL anymore. Mm. They're just poof. And the I'm assuming the Internet time machine doesn't work for that. You can't go back and get those. Yeah. Things. yeah. No. I mean, pe- people people have dug up little bits of some of them. Yeah. But there's just like this thing exists and it existed and maybe it's still out there somewhere. But who knows? Mm. Yeah. Shrug it- emoji. In in your book, all of the Marvels, you talk about how you read, and you just told us how you read a lot of these on um, digital tablets. And do you do you have any thoughts about reading a lot of these older comics, which were you know designed to be read and held in your hand, um, in you know in a printed form um, versus reading them on a digital tablet? Did do you feel like anything is lost reading them digitally? Oh God, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's there's stuff that is lost. Um, given my preference, like I would always rather read stuff in physical form because it, it is the physical artifact that there's so much stuff that is in the physical artifact that is not in the story and art as they can be reproduced digitally. There's the ads, there's the printing, there's the physical experience of the thing. Um, there's a lot of kind of stuff that was designed to be part of the experience. Even when you read like 60s Marvel stuff, like the Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko comics, Kirby drew specifically for his work to be reproduced on newsprint with you know, four color, four color uh, printing, um, kind of the messy coloring printing techniques that they had back then. Sometime back, DC published uh, some of the stuff that Kirby did in the early 70s in sort of beautiful hardbound editions on slick paper, recolored, and they just, they didn't look right. And then they tried republishing them on newsprint. High quality newsprint, like white newsprint, but newsprint. Mm. And suddenly, boom, they completely popped off the page. They look so much better that way. And so that's how they reproduce a lot of those comics now. Are newer are newer comics designed and drawn to be read digitally? Do you know some some of them definitely are. Yeah. Um, just this past week, Marvel introduced a thing on Marvel Unlimited, which is Infinity Comics. They they had a thing called Infinite Comics a few years ago. This is different. It's Infinity Comics, but they are comics that are designed to be scrolled down on a mobile phone. Oh. Interesting. Like, huh. That is how you read them. And uh, some of the early ones are drawn for that. Uh, there's one of them is an X-Men thing that Jonathan Hickman and Declan Shelfie did that specifically happens in a gigantic vertical space. And then, like it is designed for you to just like scroll up with your thumb and read it that way. And it's the work meeting the medium. And to some extent, that's that's what happens in comics that you can get as pamphlets too. People are constructing them with the idea that like, oh, you're also going to want to read this digitally. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be collecting this in a book probably in about six months. So like a five or six issue chunk is going to be a satisfying unit of story. Does it, does it feel like there is less um, lost when you're reading a comic designed to be read on a digital device um, on a digital device? I guess that's the only way I can think of to ask that question. <laughs> I mean, sure, you know, um, yeah. there's there's not necessarily a single native format for comics anymore. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I like I like holding things in my hands. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I like uh, the way that something can be designed for two facing pages and then you turn the page and something happens. If you're reading panel by panel, you don't get that. Right. Um, but if you're reading something that's been designed to be read panel by panel and it's been stuck onto printed pages, then you're just like, what are all these panels doing together? Why is it not giving me anything more when I'm looking at it as a page or as a two page spread? So when, when Marvel, when Marvel takes the older comics um, mm -hmm. from the printed form and put, puts them into um, digital form, do they carry over the old ads too? Because I, when I, when I heard you talking about the ads, I began thinking about, a lot of the stuff in your book and some of the discussions about how some of these comics represent a time and a place yeah. in society. Yeah. And I feel like the ads add additional context around those ideas, you know? Um, so I was curious if they reproduce the ads as well when they carry them over. Mostly they don't. Mm. Interestingly, Every month or two, Marvel will publish a, quote, facsimile edition of some comic from the past, which will be an exact reproduction of the way it was originally published, uh, except for maybe changing the price on the front cover and adding a line in the indicia saying, like, you know, facsimile edition or second printing. Uh, but it will otherwise be exactly the same, including the ads. And that's interesting. Um, they just did one for the first appearance of Miles Morales. Mm -hmm. uh, which is extra fascinating because it is the most recent comic that they've done that treatment for. And having a facsimile of this thing that came out like 10 years ago, that still has, I think the same cover price uh, and is now like a fantastically expensive white whale of a book. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You see it. It's kind of odd to look at it and see how different comics are not now from 10 years ago. Hmm. And, um, I'm still so, like trying to understand what he just said. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I'm like um, going back in my head, like <laughs> how they're different now than they were. They, well, how they're not different now. Um, the, the facsimile of this notable comic from 10 years ago looks and feels pretty much exactly like something that could be published now. Okay. So which is was, not, yeah. which is not something that you could say of, you know, a 1995 facsimile of something from Got 1985. It. Or, Got it. Okay. 75 from Thank you. I'm sorry. It's just like no, my okay. brain wasn't working. I was Have, like, what's going on? Yeah. No, it, I mean, I think this is, these are good, um, good ideas to talk about. What raises for me is the question, is this unusual? Have, have there been periods across the Marvel, um, epic where uh, change has been faster than a 10-year period. Like if you look at a comic from um, one point in time and then five years later, it's the form is radically different. Like it has... Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you'll, the big, big change is obviously the first decade, 61 to 71, yeah. um, which is the Lee and Kirby and to some extent Ditko period where... Marvel goes from this kind of fringe company that's publishing a bunch of monster comics and a bunch of comics about teenage girls and young professional women to a superhero comics company. And just everything about their presentation changes during that time. But there's a lot of change a lot of the rest of the time. And honestly, like despite what I was just saying, if you look at just about anything from, you know, 
two, two comics with five years between them, you're going to notice a big difference, but sometimes it takes some time from that to notice what the difference is. I'm sure 10 years from now, I can look, I'll look at the comic from 2011 and 2021 and go, how could anybody possibly thought these things looked anything alike? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, with so much to choose from, and you talk about this in, in your, in your book and you, Mm dedicate a whole chapter to it. It's called Where to Start or How to Enjoy Being Confused. And you tell us, the readers, I'm just going to quote you here, um, Mm -hmm. um, quote, being familiar with old comics is rarely a prerequisite for enjoying new comics. Skip around, trust your taste, right? And that leads me to the question that I'm hoping you can um, talk to our listeners about is like, why not start at Fantastic Four number one? Uh, because like early Marvel comics, early sixties, Marvel comics are very, very much a product of their times. Um, it was never designed to be a single story. It was specifically never designed to be a single story to be read in order. Mm -hmm. The idea was any comic that somebody picks up could be their first. Any place is the gate. Any place is the door. And a lot of the early stuff is like has not aged well at all. Either it is cringy now or it's just dull. Mm-hmm. And if you try to read everything in order, like everybody who tries to do that gets about like four issues in and you get to like the fourth or fifth Ant-Man story and you nope out. You're like, I, <laughs> I, I, I got to go cook something. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like wash my hair. Uh, it, it's, that's not the way to enjoy it now necessarily there is some beautiful and clever and original and majestic stuff in the early marvels but they're not the starting point for somebody who's starting right now necessarily mm-hmm. it's fine um yeah you don't starting at the beginning and going all the way through is the way that you do certain things that there is a lot of, if there's a big story, it's not the way you do this story. Yeah. And you, I think you, you use the metaphor for the mountain of marvels, right? <laughs> um, and yeah. you know, you just, you got to find, you find a tunnel mm-hmm. into the mountain and you just, you start digging and yeah. that might have, that'll have branches off of it. And you just, you, you just go. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, obviously different, but similarly, somebody who grew up not reading Marvel comics and trying to watch the Marvel universe on the screen, it's like sort of the same thing. Like I'll be watching a movie that I was like, oh, I'm really excited for this one movie. And then I'll be like, I don't understand like all this other stuff. And then Sawtooth will go to me, well, because you didn't watch like this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. And then it, it like hooks you in to like go in back and like read and watch those movies too. See, like, this, is the, this is kind of the pleasure of it. You're, you're yeah. getting, this is exactly right, Jen. Um, It'll confuse you at first, but it'll give you a clue to what you want to be unconfused about. Right, exactly. What you want to find out. And then maybe if you're interested, you can go find out. I think one of the brilliant things that the MCU has done is not being tied to everything we release is in chronological order. Right. You know, 
Captain Marvel happens before a bunch of the other movies. Captain America, the first Avenger, happens before a bunch of the other movies. We just had that gigantic uh, Avenger sequence, and now there's the Black Widow movie that happens before some of those. Great. Like, that's... Right, yeah. And now people... But how do I watch them all in order? Like, you don't have to. Right, yeah. The order, the order to watch them is the same as the order to read the comics in, which is whatever you feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then... Like Stomping Jen was just saying, you know, you can get those um, light bulbs going off about mm-hmm. this. Can oh, this connected to that thing yeah. I saw three movies ago. Yeah, and exactly. That can be really cool. And um, Douglas, you you talk in your book all of mm-hmm. the Marvels about the three chronologies, right? Yeah. Kind of as a framing mechanism to help yeah. make sense of all of this. Could you talk a, just a little bit about about those? Sure. I mean, the chronologies I'm talking about, which are to some extent interchangeable. There's the chronology in which the comics were published. Like something comes out one month, next issue comes out the next month. Pretty straightforward. There is the chronology in which events within the story happen, which is different because multiple stories are going on simultaneously. Maybe one is before another one. It'll all shake out eventually. Sometimes there'll be like a little continuity insert. Like, you know, this is a Spider-Man story that happens during the Spider-Man stories that were published in 1965. You're fine. You'll get this. And then the really important one, the most important one is the order in which you experience the stories. Hmm. There's there's a thing that I say, like, as somebody who is reading these comics, effectively, You've got a time machine. Why not use it? Yeah. And that kind of speaks to what mm-hmm. you were you were talking about. And it's okay. Right. Like it's totally yeah. fine. Yeah. And um I, and as I was um as I was reading your book Douglas, I began mm-hmm. to challenge this this notion I had in my mind of wanting to know. I'm going to talk about the MCU for a second, the mm-hmm. Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like mm-hmm. what what comic book is that from? Like, and I, and I, as I began to read through your book, um, and you do this, you do this really great job of using like specific issues, and you talk about you talk about specific comic book issues to kind of try to illustrate some of the points you're making as you go along. And I began to see, oh, um, this MCU is like built from like probably hundreds of different comic books it's not like just from one comic book Mm -hmm. it's not like each movie isn't a carbon copy of a comic book book, or a series of uh or a series you know Mm -hmm. within a within a um within a title it's like assembled from all different places well that keeps it new and fresh i can imagine for somebody who's read the comics right i mean it's 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 raw material that the MCU gets to draw on because it's working in a different medium. You don't have the benefit of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of publications with these characters. You do have the benefit of moving pictures and voice and sound and that kind of visual immediacy. You don't have the benefit of Jack Kirby's drawing hand, David Aha's drawing hand, you know, uh, <laughs> that kind of distortion of the world into something that can only come through a pencil and ink artist's eye and hand. But you do have this kind of televisual cinematic impression that what you're seeing in front of you is real. It's that it's what your eyes would have seen if they'd been in the same place at the same time. It's a different medium. And 
it shouldn't have to adapt things. It's not about getting it right. It's about doing what works really well as a movie. You know, I saw the Shang-Chi movie a couple of weeks ago. Uh, really enjoyed it. It left um, it left a lot of the like cringy stuff from the Master of Kung Fu comics out. It also left a lot of really interesting things about those comics on the table. That's fine. There was so much going on in that movie already. Mm-hmm. Like, it took what it needed to be a fascinating, fun, interesting, attention-grabbing movie in 2021 from those comics. Great. Into it. Yeah, and um, um, one of the things that um, I we're starting to see in the MCU that you spend um, a lot of time in the book talking about um, is the the concept of these legacy characters, right? Yeah. Um, so you have um, Iron Man, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Captain America. Um, now, you know, they're starting in the MCU and the TV show, like with Hawkeye, um, to begin yeah. playing with transitioning those um, those characters. characters into into new uh, people within. There's new Captain America. Right. And he's not white. <laughs> right. And okay. Iron Man is going to be probably a woman. Uh, same with the new Hawkeye. Right. And mm-hmm. um, this was something that was really controversial in the in the com in the printed comics and there's there's a legacy of of people getting really upset about all of this yeah there's a legacy of jerks getting really upset yep. about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the idea of legacy characters is not a new thing it goes back really to the 1950s when so by the late 1940s superhero comics were way out of fashion they were the thing that we used to like when we worried about Hitler. Um, There were relatively few superhero comics still being published, like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, all DC, Um, Captain Marvel for a while published by Fawcett, the, not the uh, Marvel, Captain Marvel, the big red cheese, Shazam, Captain Marvel. Uh, And that was really it by the early fifties. In 1954, I believe, DC Comics starts reintroducing their old superhero characters, but they're not the same as they were. They are legacy versions of it. They are new characters playing the role of the Flash and the role of Green Lantern and so forth. The role of the Adam, the role role of Hawkman. And for a while, DC was doing this. After 20 or 30 years, that version of that character would retire and pass it on to somebody else. And when you know Marvel eventually starts doing this and gradually slowly gets the idea, maybe we can pass these roles onto people who are not the same, like 15 white dudes this time, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which yay. Um, so we, we uh, we're seeing more and more of that, but it's, it's not a, you know, the, the legacy, the passing on of the role is not a new thing. And honestly, I think it's really useful to keep comics fresh. Uh, to keep the characters fresh. I mean, I love Miles Morales. He's fantastic. I think in a lot of ways, like Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, is even more the Peter Parker of right now. Yeah. (laughs) Like like teenage superhero trying to find their way in the world. Uh, That that is the Spider-Man formula that has been just moved over to Kamala Khan and it works great. 
Yeah, and and um, I learned this from Douglas's book, Stomping yeah. Jen. Kamala Khan kind of did something new and brought a new idea to the superhero. It's not that um, you as a superhero are good and you're you know, fighting for um, the good embodied within you. It's your actions are good. Like good is a, good is a thing you do in the world yeah, and yeah. you put onto the world. It's not about necessarily about a um, internal ca- characteristic that hmm. you have as a hero. And that was, that was a revel. Was it a revolutionary idea? I don't want, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Douglas. I don't know if it's a revolutionary idea. I think it's yeah. a really beautiful one. Um, yeah. G. Willow Wilson, who's the writer who wrote like the first 40, 50 issues of Ms. Marvel, said that her editor, Sana Amanat, challenged her when she was writing the first couple of issues. Like, you need to have something that crystallizes this character. You need to have your with great power comes great responsibility moment. And what she came up with was the phrase, good is not a thing you are. It's a thing you do. Which, yeah. it, it, it sounds really simple. It is really straightforward in a lot of ways, but it goes to the heart of what that particular character is. And it means that that character has like a really well-defined core, which means you can now use that character in all kinds of situations and don't make sense. And that's an idea that might make um, Steve Rogers, Captain America, (laughs) say, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, I'm good. I, I am the the representation of good you know from a from a um american political perspective i don't know there was notably a big big captain america storyline just a few years ago that played with that idea and got a lot of people really head up Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if you heard about this the secret empire thing Mm -mm. this is the second secret empire story uh so premise of this story is Steve Rogers for, has for a little while been out of the picture. Sam Wilson, as in the comics, yep. has taken over. Uh, he is Captain America now. There's yep. a series called Sam Wilson, Captain America. Oh no, people gasp. Who is this mysterious black guy who has only been like working with Captain America f- for 45 years worth of comics? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and what is he doing? I think one of the first collections is named after a reaction that people were having to this online, which which is not my Captain America. So in the middle of this, uh, Steve Rogers, who has suddenly turned into an old man, um, there's like this deus ex machina thing that happens and he is magically restored to his youth. And he's like, well, I'll be Captain America now, too, again. And what we don't know, uh, well, what everybody doesn't know, but we the readers know, is that this deus ex machina thing has also changed his history, so he has retroactively always been a fascist. Oh, he right. Has, yeah. He has retroactively always been working for Hydra. He's just been waiting for the moment to reveal his true colors. And in the story, as help us all, in real life, everyone immediately gravitates to the old white guy who's been doing the job forever. And is like, Oh, you're, you're the real captain America. While the actually competent black man who everyone expects to be able to magically solve everything cannot get any respect at all. Yeah. And that, so there is a Steve Rogers, captain America series, and there is a, Sam Wilson, Captain America series, and they are running simultaneously, and they're they're telling two parts of the same story, mm-hmm. and the Steve Rogers one is outselling 
the Sam Wilson one significantly, yeah. even though it's the same same yeah. story, same writer. Same, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, just to jump to a connection to the MCU, I'm, I'm almost certain now hearing you talk about it, that when in the MCU, when um, Captain America says to himself, hail Hydra, doesn't he say that to he says that to somebody? Um, yeah, as, there's a throwaway joke in the. In yeah, the, I feel like that's yeah. probably a reference to that storyline, possibly. It's gotta be. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, and it. Um, in, so much. Yeah, in in the um, in your book, all the Marvels, you have a, a really good section on like frequently asked questions, and one of them that you grapple with or hear all the time is when when did these comics get so political? <laughs> And, and you can, do you want to do you want to talk about what you're answering? To They've that is? always been <laughs> yeah. political. You cannot separate politics yeah. from them. There is a political dimension to every single story about exerting power within the world to change it one way or another. That's what politics is. The cover of the very first issue of Captain America is. Captain America punching Hitler in the jaw. Mm-hmm. That issue was published at the end of 1940, a year before Pearl Harbor. Captain America was created as an explicit argument to get the U.S. into World War II. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, go ahead. Sorry, I, I know we're not talking about this at all, and it has nothing to do with the book. Um, but I can't help but think about the series The Boys. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. Um, where this concept of superhero uh, in the world as being bad, like that they're portrayed like as marketing tools, right? Like so, yeah. but they're really like and like like projections projections of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why and, my mind's going there. And that is that is based on a comic series written by Garth Ennis, who has done a bunch of like Marvel and DC stuff. Is mm-hmm. very very interesting writer. Uh, but is very, very cynical about the whole concept of superheroes in general, Mm -hmm. except for Superman. Mm -hmm. Garth Ennis loves Superman. Mm. Bless him. Yeah. I love Superman too. You do love, oh yes. Are we going to talk about your obsession? Well, (laughs) it's no secret. And I know he's, I know he's a DC character. I I absolutely love the Henry Cavill portrayal of Superman Mm -hmm. for some reason. I just, I don't know what it is. I think he's like aesthetically a perfect Superman. I love, I liked Zack Snyder's take on the character. Mm -hmm. There's just so much I loved about it. And, and it it talks about some of the stuff we're talking about here in terms of like these characters are um, reinterpreted over time and they get new representations um, as, as we go, as we go along. And right now, like there are, there are folks talking about making, a, uh, a Superman movie in another universe with a black Superman. And there are mm-hmm. a bunch of people up in arms over that, you know, yeah. um, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, um, we've talked about a couple of the, the writers of the comic books, Douglas. And the mm-hmm. one I think that pops into everybody's mind probably is Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you, um, you talk uh, quite a bit about the, the authors of the comics and the, yeah the importance that they play um, in, in, in comics. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about Stan Lee and his, his role in, he had a particular role in transforming the medium with, with his approach to them. He did. And one thing I kind of want to clarify first is uh, 
I try to avoid thinking of comics writers as their authors. Okay. Because they're, they're different things. Um, if you deal with prose writing a lot, writer and author are the same thing. It's the person who comes up with the words, and that is the book, that is the article, that is the magazine, that's the whatever. That's authorship. Comics authorship works real differently. The person who creates the story is at least as much an artist as a writer. Uh, so, so they occupy different, they occupy often different roles within the creation of a, of a comic. Yeah. I mean, what you're getting, the experience is, first of all, the experience is very much a visual experience. It yep. is very much about how something is expressed visually. And in fact, in the case of early Marvel stuff, the, the question of who's writing it is a really big question. There's a fantastic book uh, called Lee and Kirby Stuff Said, which is all the interviews that the person who put this book together could find with both Stan Lee and Jack Kirby about how their collaboration worked in the 1960s. And any time one of them uses the word writing, he puts it in red because they use the word to mean completely different things. Huh. As far as Stan Lee was concerned, writing meant coming up with the actual words that you read on the page, and that was his job. As far as Jack Kirby was concerned, the job of writing was coming up with what happens in the story and how you show it, which was his job. Each mm. of them was convinced that they were the writer. Mm. They were both right. Yeah. And I could, so, I could see how that might... Um, produce a creative tension. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely did. Now, there was a lot of collaboration that went on between them, a lot of story conferences. The extent to which each of them was involved in plotting, like, that varies according to whose account you're reading. But what Stanley developed was what he called the Marvel method, which was how he was able to like crank out a dozen comics a month that had his name on them, which is that the plotting, he would either write a short synopsis of a plot for an artist or just call them up and talk to them on the phone or meet with them in the office and talk to them about what the story was going to be. Uh, there are legends of him you know, like jumping up on his desk and acting things out. Uh, or sometimes he'd just give them a few sentences worth of guidance for like, yeah, why don't we use this character this month and maybe this thing should happen. Or he would just leave it up to them altogether and they would turn in finished pencil pages and then he would write the dialogue and captions. That's crazy. Uh, so for artists, that gave them an enormous amount of freedom. It gave them freedom for pacing. It gave them freedom for staging. It gave them freedom for drawing whatever the heck they felt like drawing. It also meant that they were doing a lot of plotting work. Yeah. So, um, and that method, one way or another, was more or less standard operating procedure at Marvel for a long time. Later writers would often write more detailed plots, but sometimes they would you know, write a page or two of like, here's what's going to happen in this issue. Sometimes they would break it down like, here's what happens on this page, or here's a scene. The scene is about four pages long. And then they would come back and like fill in the dialogue. And that way it would match neatly with what was 
going on in the artwork. And so you got some really visually driven comics. The other thing that Stan Lee did brilliantly was that he was an editor. He was hiring these particular artists. He was seeking them out. He had a really great eye for them. And he would push them to be more themselves. He's like, yeah, this is good, but you take, take some more liberties, get, get a little looser. Like you can, you can do this in, there's not really a house style. You don't have to do it just like Jack Kirby does do it. Like you would do it, which is why in the sixties, when he's working directly with them, one artist after another goes from this fairly straightforward, you know, like here's, here's how we tell the story kind of artist to just amazing expression on the page. Wow. I'm still wrapping my head around this. Yeah. I don't know how I thought comic books got made, but in my when I'm thinking about listening when I'm while I'm listening to you, like I could picture like them like sketching it out, like the story and having the artist like draw it in, but that doesn't sound like that's what happened at all. Like I couldn't imagine like having an artist draw out all the storyline without knowing what the people were doing. I don't know. That's crazy. So yeah, the artist did a lot of plotting work. That's crazy. Um at DC and other publishers during that time, and sometimes at Marvel, mm -hmm. and a lot more now, you'll get people writing complete scripts, like page, you know, page four, panel one, here's what happens, here's the dialogue. Uh, sometimes stage it like this. Chris Claremont, who wrote X-Men for 15 years straight, famously wrote plots that were almost stream of consciousness plots, but uh, Alan Davis, who's an artist who worked with him, has talked about how much fun it was to work with him because he would tell you everything about the characters and the plots. He would tell you everything about their motivation. He would explain what had to happen in terms of action, but he would not call shots at all. He would not stage it at all. He would say, like, this is the psychological effect I want. This is what happens to this character. You figure out how to show that. Wow. That's that's an. Um, it sounds like an amazing amount of freedom as an artist. Yeah. As a as a person drawing the image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. And also a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um, but like Stan Lee, he's like the one that you know. Like, is that because he created the characters? Like that he gets all this accolade. And Douglas talks about this in the book, oh, and I want to let him. Oh, I want to. I, I just. I want to make sure people know that. This is something Douglas addresses. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, but I want to let Douglas answer that. <laughs> so the, the, there, there is a truism in the comics business, which is that the only character that Stan Lee ever created all by himself was Stan Lee. Mm. <laughs> the, like the huckster, the guy with the sunglasses, the guy who uh, you know makes the cameo appearances like that. That is the role that he played in public mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, he worked with artists. The artists came up, in some cases, you know, we know a particular artist came up with a particular character. Like Doctor Strange, that's Steve Ditko. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a letter from Stan Lee in 1962 to a fan where he says, like, we've got a new feature coming out, Doctor Strange, it was Steve's idea. Uh, there are a few cases where it gets really ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Who created Daredevil? That's a real good question. We know that Jack Kirby did the first drawing of his costume, but Bill Everett drew the first issue and drew, like, designed most of the characters. 
And Stanley wrote a lot of that issue, but actually the costume that we think of as being Daredevil's costume, the red thing, didn't happen until about a year later, and it was Wally Wood who came up with that. But if you're talking about Daredevil as we know him now, who's the you know, guy who's in Hell's Kitchen, and, uh, and he's this tormented Catholic, and he's got Wilson Fisk or the Kingpin as his enemy, and like that's Frank Miller. That's stuff from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So who came up with him? Good question. Yeah. Thor. Kirby drew the first Thor story. Lee plotted the first Thor story. The dialogue in the first Thor story was by Lee's brother, Larry Lieber. Uh, Iron Man, there's like six or seven different people who at some stage like contributed something really significant to what we think of as Iron Man. Who created it? It was a collaboration. Mm. Yeah, and, and that is so interesting because I think a lot of us, um, I'm not including you, um, Douglas, obviously, <laughs> you've done your research. Stomping Jen and I are probably walking around thinking Stan Lee created all of these characters, and and it goes to a, a quote I wrote down here from your from your book, and it's it's a critical but loving quote too, which <laughs> is that you know you describe Stan Lee as um, a con man who delivers the goods. Yeah, that and that is a uh, that's a line from an interview with John Romita who drew Spider-Man for a while when yeah. Lee was writing the script and John Romita says like, yeah, Stan was a con man. Everybody knows that, but he did deliver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoever heard of such a thing, <laughs> <laughs> a con man who gives you what he's promising. That's crazy. Yeah. And you know, there are artists who fell out with Lee. Uh, Jack Kirby was furious at Lee by the end of his career. He was like, you know, I came up with all that stuff and I've never seen Stanley write a thing in his life. And if you think of writing the way that Jack Kirby did, like, that's not totally unfair. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he he has to have been some kind of um, catalyst, though, right? Like a, a, oh, yeah. like a, like part of the magic um, potion, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think I mentioned, like, you know, I think of it as like Daryl Hall and John Oates, you know, one of them is the person who's the really, really gifted, creative, inventive one. And then there's the one without whom the magic doesn't happen. Yeah. And that's kind of Stan Lee's job. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one fascinating thing about Lee, uh, even in the 70s, he was the person that people working at Marvel would go to when they had come up with some kind of creative problem. Uh, There is a great story that's in... uh, Tom Spurgeon's uh, biography of Stanley, where Jerry Conway is talking about how, you know, sometime in like 73 or 74, he went to uh, Stan with Len Wein, who was his editor, and said, So we have a problem. We need a name for this character. Uh, Johnny's designed him. He looks great. He's got this fantastic, like, skull and crossbones thing. And Stan's like, Okay, so what's this guy's deal? Like, well, you know, um, he was a Vietnam vet. And uh, then his family got killed in mob crossfire. And now he just like hunts down criminals to like punish them for, for what they've done. And Lee looks at the thing for half a second and goes, he's the punisher. <laughs> that's and right. Go, of course he's the punisher. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and these, um, and I love how you um, use the characters in, in yeah. your book, all um, the all of the Marvels to kind of frame this 
gigantic um, half million page story, right? And and to kind of like break down some of the themes and the big storylines. And I want to talk about some of those some of those characters. Yeah, and what I want to and I'm not asking you to give away any of the secret sauce in the book. I want I want people to read this book. Um, you know, I it is it is it is a testament that I finished a book. Uh, <laughs> and, and I and again and I know a lot of the people who listen to this show yeah. are into comics yes, and popular sure. culture like me. And you will you will love this book. Get it. It's it it really I'm sorry, it it really it blew something open in my mind mm-hmm. about this Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. Like in a Keep way gushing. I didn't in a way I didn't understand. <laughs> well, no, Douglas, I may have I may have sent you a link to a panel or something we did with a bunch of people on um we had oh, a conversation yeah. about I think was it it was about WandaVision. About WandaVision. Yeah. I had on these super fans, and they were referencing this stuff from this comic and that, yeah. and talking about M- Mephisto, and I had no, I had, yeah, we had, I had no, no idea. idea. We were totally lost. But after reading your book, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Like yeah. that, that now I know why they said that thing because all this stuff is happening uh-huh. that I didn't know, and this is connected to. Anyways, so. Um, you kind of start off this, I think, this 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 character-driven framing of the greater Marvel story with Spider-Man, yeah. And um, and, and there's there's like a key reason why at the time I think he was he was different from other characters, and I just wonder if you want to just talk about that just a little bit. See, I was scared you were going to ask me why there's no Daredevil chapter, which a number of people have asked me. Oh, but, um, I didn't think to ask that, but let me scratch <laughs> that. <note. laughs> um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm curious what your what your take on what's what's special and different about Spider Man. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I learned from reading the book was mm-hmm. that Spider Man um, is in in a con. <sighs> Sorry, it's not looking for a father figure per se, right? But a lot of his, a lot of his, a we don't know what happened to Peter's father, really. Like I think eventually when, we do, but yeah, yeah like when the story do. opens, like when we're introduced yeah, to Peter, yeah. and a lot of yeah. his, a lot of his nemeses are these, these father figures that end up, um, like turning against him, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. But like Doc Ock and whatever. Yeah. Um, but Peter, um, you know, Peter and Spider-Man are um, their characters. Was something blinking over there? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to distract you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, Peter. Peter is somebody who struggles with um, being a superhero, mm-hmm. right? He's like not entirely um, He's comfortable also a with teenager. it. He's also a kid. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's a story of somebody trying to grow up mm-hmm. right with these two identities mm-hmm. like he's not he's an adolescent and he's not he's not even you know he's not even an adult yet his prefront prefrontal cortex is informed and he's <laughs> all of a sudden a superhero yeah. yeah i mean you say a lot more about peter and spider-man in the book but those are sort of kind of the the big takeaways for me with those two things about him yeah it, it is Spider-Man for its first eight years or so is very much the, like, how is this kid going to grow up? Yeah. How does a boy become a man? Yeah. How does an adolescent become an adult? Um, he has lost his birth father. Now he has lost his surrogate father figure and it's his fault. He feels, 
how is he going to deal with this? How is he going to integrate himself into the world? And like that's that is a classical story form. That is a building's roman. That is a coming of age story. And that's what's at the core of Spider-Man. When there's a new there's a new version of Spider-Man, if it no matter if it's you know, into the Spider-Verse or one of the movie series or a new comic series or an animated TV show or whatever, it's always Peter in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hasn't been in high school for 45 years worth of comics now. But Peter in high school, like that is the stuff. And I was talking uh, last week for my own podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, with James Kakalios, who is the guy who wrote The Physics of Superheroes. And he was telling me that he had been driving a a couple of uh, his nieces and nephews in the car a little while ago. And one of them said, hey, Uncle James, uh, how did Spider-Man get started? And so he starts telling the story of, you know, the uh, the lonely miserable kid in high school the the nerdy kid uh the spider bite the dead uncle like everything that's in this like 11 page story that you know everybody's kind of internalized whether they've read comics or not like you know who aunt may is you know who j jonah jameson is you know who peter parker is you know who uncle ben is and these kids had not heard this story before and he was like they were spellbound mm-hmm. they were absolutely right I had forgotten. It's such a good story. It's yeah. such a good premise for stories. I think too, like it's genius in a lot of ways because you, what is the target market for most comic books? It's like a young adolescent male usually, right? Especially with like a Spider-Man story. I mean, they do now have like, you know, Gwen. Well, let's, put the pin, let's put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just like, you know, I think about like, you know, that, that that could be it's such like an easily translatable thing like i I had read something about the um twilight series and about why they're so popular is because young girls reading these books can put themselves into that character of bella like the main character they can see themselves in that character reflected back to them and i can imagine that peter parker might be yeah the same in some ways, but I don't know. Yeah, and, and Peter Parker, like as you see him in that first story, he's a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> and like he is, like he is on his way to becoming an awful adult. Uh, there's a bit in the at the beginning of the story where he's like walking away, crying for the kids who who are teasing him, and he's thinking like, one day they'll be sorry, sorry mm. they laughed at me. Yeah, that's not how a hero to be talks. No. That's how a villain talks, right? It is. Uh, and there's this amazing story uh, that 15 years ago during crossover House of M. Like, so alternate reality, we get to see a version of Peter Parker where everything has always gone right for him. Aunt May is still alive. Uncle Ben is still alive. Uh, he's married to Gwen Stacy. They've got a kid. Um, everybody loves him. He's a beloved superhero and a beloved pro wrestler. And a beloved actor, and he's probably having an affair with Mary Jane, who's his co-star. And he's just the worst person. Mm. Nothing ever went wrong for him, and he just turned into this dreadful adult. Mm. Yeah. And it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but what you were saying about like, you know, the young the the boys, the mm-hmm. adolescent boys being the audience for this, that wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. Um comics at some point after the early 60s became first 
aimed gradually at a slightly older audience. Mm-hmm. As Marvel and others know this, their audience was growing up with them. They know this, mm-hmm. that people on colleges were reading their comics. Mm-hmm. People beyond colleges were reading their comics. And they aimed up. And in, the story grew up with them. Also drifted away from the girls. Mm. In 1961, 1962, Marvel was publishing a ton of stuff with women protagonists, girl protagonists, mm-hmm. stuff aimed at women and girls. It was not yet superhero stories because they weren't publishing superhero stories at all yet at that point. Mm-hmm. But they were publishing you know, Linda Carter, student nurse. They were publishing Millie the Model. They were publishing Kathy the Teenage Tornado. They were publishing a couple different romance comics. They were and half their line was these comics about young professional women and teenage girls. And then they fell away from the story hmm. and eventually started to make their way back. But there's this whole kind of undercurrent of like, where did the women go? Hmm. Yeah, I love in the book, and one of the other characters I wanted to talk with you about was was Linda Carter, who started out as the student nurse, as you just talked about, but then later transformed into the night nurse. Yes, and you you and um, you talk about in the book how there there is a potential lens to see this all of this as Linda Carter's story potentially. Because she's a tall order for a character who's been in like 25 comics yeah, ever, period. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just, I thought that was so fascinating that yeah. it, it, there is a way to kind of do mm-hmm. that, do that logic. And I'm like, then I was thinking back to myself, then I was thinking back to when I was watching, um, and I'm sorry if I'm referencing too much Marvel TV and oh, movie brilliant. stuff. I, love it. Good, good I was thinking it. back when I was watching the first season of Daredevil, like whenever yeah, Daredevil would go get show. beat up, there yeah. was a nurse he would go see. Uh-huh. And was that Linda Carter? That was not Linda Carter. Okay. That was, uh, what was her? She's, is, is it Claire Temple in the, in the show? I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, there, I believe Claire Temple, who is a character who was in uh, Hero for Hire, the Luke Cage okay. comic in the early 70s, who kind of plays that role. Okay. Uh, and there's also the, the woman who's like a love interest in the Doctor Strange movie, the, the, the nurse who appeared in the Night Nurse comic in the early 70s. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. When I was reading, when I was reading the book, I was hoping that that, that, <laughs> that, that would be true. That, that would be Linda Carter because it would have been no, beautiful. It's, it's, yeah, it, 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 she's kind of playing that role. It's not. It's not quite her. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and um, I, I absolutely loved your um, your chapter on um, in your review of the uh, Master of Kung Fu comics oh, and yeah. and and Shang Chi because we had just seen the movie a couple weeks ago as That's well I mean. and. Um, you know, kind of how Shang Chi was unique too, because that character um, was kind of eschewing um, what was expected of him, like from his um, uh, from his from his father, who was you know I don't want to, was I don't want to say evil. That's too simplistic, but um, power yeah. he's, he's yeah, he's kind of evil in the he's super evil in the comics. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um and also you spend a lot of time and this is this is one of the um uh one of the opportunities you, you use to talk about um you know racism and yeah. and pro- and how comics were uh for a, for 
a time really problematic in the way they did representation. Um, you mm-hmm. know, um, especially especially around like the coloring of the characters in yeah. oh, Master of Kung Fu, and that yeah. that went on for some time. And yeah. Um, oh, yeah. the other thing I, I really took away from that chapter too was you talk about the role of um, reader letters to mm-hmm. the comics. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could t- talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was fascinating. I had no idea. Um, it never registered to me. Maybe I skipped over it mentally that, that yeah. the fans wrote into the comics and like asked for stuff and people responded to them. They sure did. It's, it's amazing. Like, this is one of the reasons I love letter columns so much. Yeah. First of all, you see who's writing in. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the first 10, 15 issues of Fantastic Four, there are letters from people who were fans reading then who became the editor-in-chief of Marvel later on. Oh, yeah. cool. Uh, there is a letter from young George R.R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like <laughs> 14 years old. It was the first thing he ever published. It was a letter to Fantastic Four about yeah. how, oh how great Fantastic Four is. So uh, he was still George R. Martin then. He hadn't put the second R in his name yet. Uh, there's a letter, I think, one of the first letters uh, to Amazing Spider-Man is a guy named Buddy Saunders, who then started, he started Lone Star Comics, which is like the biggest mail order comics business in America uh, to this day. There's letters from so many people who went on to be in the comics business and in other creative businesses. And there's this kind of... Stanley's answers to all these letters that the kids were writing in in 60s Marvel like he's super chummy with all of them he gives them all nicknames he talks very familiarly with all of them and like it's obvious flim flam like it's mm-hmm. he he is say like well you know if you write in you could be part of this giant uh, cultural thing that we're building right here and that's transparently a lie and it also turned out to be true <laughs> He is the con man who delivers the goods. Yep, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the master kung fu. Yes, sir. No, I was just going to say, and those those letters sometimes raised up important issues yeah. uh, to to the the makers of the comics, and they and in some cases they, they made change. They made yeah. changes. They paid attention and they listened, which I think is important. Yeah, the master of kung fu thing. I mean, in particular. There's a guy named uh, William Wu, William F. Wu or Bill Wu, who was the person whose letters were published in Master of Kung Fu more than anybody else. And he was obviously a giant fan of the comic. He read it very, very carefully. He wrote very thoughtful letters. And he was not having the way that they were treating Asian characters. He was like, you, uh, whose idea was it to color this character bright yellow? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Fu Manchu. Why is Fu Manchu a character in this? Absolutely. Like, the, he is, this is just a poisonous character, and I know it's built into the concept of this thing, but it just absolutely wrecks it for me. Yeah. And he made excellent points. The writer in particular, Doug Manchu, wrote most of the original run of Master of Kung Fu, like, wrote back to him very thoughtfully, and Eventually, they fixed it. Mm-hmm. They changed things. And it took a while. And it took, you know, significant engagement. But it happened. They cared about 
what their readers thought. They wanted to do the right thing. And eventually they figured it out. I think that's yeah. fascinating and special. Yeah. And, it, and I think it also has a, um, it connects up in time to um, what we see now is kind of the contemporary tradition of fan feedback mm-hmm. to to makers of right. comic related properties like the the restore the snyder cut movement <laughs> i know that's not marvel but i'm just saying like <laughs> that wouldn't have happened right. if there weren't if maybe there wasn't this historic uh tradition of fans right. giving feedback to comic book makers you know yeah very possibly that's a good thought yeah i um yeah i just <laughs> I loved, but I loved, that was such a good chapter. I mean, it Thank you. Yeah, it, it was. And then, oh man, then the the chapter on the um, the X-Men and, and the role they play in the Marvel Universe. And, you know, in terms of the big ideas, um, the, uh, the metaphorical uh, representation that they, yeah. that they, they, um, they are, you know, for, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. um, you know, for other underrepresented people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I highly, highly recommend uh, folks, you know, get Douglas's book. And I mean, for that chapter alone, I think it just was really powerful for me. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> That chapter went through so much revision over so much time uh, that trying to get it right. And I, I sort of wish I had been able to include what's been going on with the last two years worth of X-Men, which is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like they are some of the best superhero comics I've ever read in the last two years. And they have taken the mutant metaphor, the, the idea of mutants as not specifically any kind of person who gets othered, but as a way to tell in general stories about what happens to subaltern communities and really run with it in absolutely amazing ways. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm intentionally leaving out some of the, um, the plot details and how they, how all of this figures into the larger Marvel um, story yeah, because I've, you got to read the book for yeah, yourself. Because <laughs> I have to say, like in read in reading seriously, like in reading all of the Marvels, as I was going along, it became it did become revelatory to me, mm-hmm. like what was what was happening, you know, in the MCU and like where I think it's going to go now, and like there are things that just. It was, you know, the sky opened and the light yes. shined down on me. Anyways, that I just, awesome. so I'm, I'm intentionally leaving out some of those storylines because I want people to go and have that joy of discovery that I had in reading your book. Um, the uh, Another thing I took away from all of the Marvels that I, I loved was how Thor has changed over time yeah. and what, and how, you know, what Thor represents, you know? Yeah. Um, I loved that Thor started out as a businessman with a, a <laughs> with a suitcase, right? Like or, he's, he's a doctor. Oh, a doctor. Sorry. Yeah, doc- I'm yeah, getting Dr. it mixed Donald up. Blake, yeah. That's great. Sorry. I, I knew I was bound to get some of the things mixed up. Um, I think it's so interesting. But too. yeah, he, he was just a, like a regular, like he was, yeah, he had a, he had an alternate, identity not how we see thor um in the in the current representations right. yeah well, sorry go ahead no i was just thinking about comics and their place in uh in literature history yeah. and like you know just in general in like our own subcon like our own 
collective social constructs of like mythology and how mythology for kids, like kids, I think every single kid for the most part, maybe not every single one, but like goes through this period in their lives where they discover like Greek and Roman mythology and they like become obsessed with it for a very short or a longer period of time. But like comic book heroes are like an extension of mythology, right? It it builds this world, right? World building and all of that. I don't know. Because like Thor is like straight up like mythology. Yeah, Yeah. he is straight out of the Eddas. He's straight out of the Norse myths. Right. Uh, And there's a lot of stuff that, well, one thing I love is that within the Marvel Universe, every body of mythology is just some interesting stuff that happened a while ago that somebody wrote down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's all true. Yeah. Every bit of it. Yeah. And um, one of the other, I I love also, and we, we see this in the movies too, but yeah, Thor and the idea of worthiness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like this, um, in order, you know, in order to to wield this power, you know, you have to be it, worth it. Yeah, and it and it and in some ways, it is maybe somebody like um, Ms. Ms. Marvel is a is an antidote to that <laughs> too, right? Because you know, Thor Thor is all about my internal qualities, right? Um, I have to be worthy to be a hero. Um, where Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan is like, you know, my, my, my status as a hero is about the good I put into the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought those were really interesting juxtaposition. I think you do talk about that a little. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, and Thor Thor is my favorite character. I'll have to say that right now. He's my favorite. Over, over Daredevil? Uh, yeah. Um, I love Thor. Um, so I, I really know, want to know like what what the Daredevil comics were that were the ones that hooked you. Do you oh God! Um, do you remember anything about the characters or the? I I don't. But what I can tell. Okay. What, um, and sorry, this is going back so <laughs> long. And like I said, I abandoned <laughs> I abandoned them after about a year of obsession. Okay. Um, and I haven't gone back to them. Um, but you I, did like the TV show. I loved that TV show. I um, know. But the thing that hooked me about Daredevil, I, I, I do, I, what I can tell you kind of emotionally mm-hmm. was its darkness and yeah. its, t- you know, its tone. And um, I love the drawings. You know, I loved yeah. the imagery of Daredevil, um, you know, silhouetted, sitting on a ledge, his horns, you know, like I loved that. Um, really intense visual imagery and just the the darkness it didn't feel like any other comic book i had ever encountered before it wasn't like superman you know which yeah. was which was um at least at that time i think or you know like brighter like brighter and brighter colors yeah. more <laughs> vibrant more hopeful mm-hmm. daredevil was just like grim mm-hmm. gritty Gritty, yeah. Great. Before before grittiness was a you know a thing, like, yeah. and that's that's what I loved about it. it Did just, you say Frank Miller though made them? Because that sounds like Frank Miller kind of stuff. So you might be thinking of the Frank Miller stuff uh, from the early eighties. So you say you encountered these around like eighty five, eighty six, probably closer to eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah, but if they were in a box, so, who knows? Yeah. They might have been old Frank Miller comics. They might have been from the also very grim and very beautifully drawn period that uh, David Mazzucchelli was drawing uh, around 84, 85. What was being published at the time 
was one of my favorite periods of Daredevil, which is a writer named Anna Senti, who uh, is super interesting person, drawn by John Romita Jr. and Al Williamson. And it was super stylized. There were a lot of like very, very fine vertical and horizontal lines. Like mm-hmm. everything was, was shaded with not, not in black, but in like very, very fine lines. Uh, and it was just this weird trippy uh, typhoid. Mary was a major character at that point. If uh, she was playing into it, and but everything was just kind of, outsized and distorted and i think there's one issue that's mostly devoted to like daredevil hallucinating that he's fighting a vacuum cleaner oh god <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah does that sound like what no you're no but no but as we, the old frank miller stuff somebody left in the box but as we're talking like i think yeah. i loved his powers i loved that he was blind and yeah. like one of the things i loved about his costume is that it covered his eyes right yeah. and there was this sense of um uh, like danger to me when he jumped off of something and, you know, I loved his weapons. I loved like that. He took his cane apart. Right. And it became, I don't know these, anything about there, became no. these two things that he could throw. <laughs> and I love the drawings of the cane flying yeah. through the space. Like, yeah, just it, I don't know. It's just something about it at that time in my life. I just drew me to it. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. And um, he was, he hurt people. I mean, I didn't love that about it, but he hurt people. And that was new to me in terms of the superhero genre. Like he had no qualms about hurting people and like badly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're used to that now, right? Like we see it, we see that, we see that a lot now, but for me encountering that at that time in my life, that was new. Mm. Yeah. So there's uh can I take a second to uh, plug my podcast? By yeah, way? please do. Oh, yeah, yep. Sure. Uh, so I've been doing a, a podcast called The Voice of Latveria. Uh, it is so. Are you familiar with Doctor Doom, the Fantastic Four enemy? Yes. Due to the mask. Yeah. Yes. And after reading your book, I now have a really good sense of how important that character is. Yeah. Uh, it may, the book may give a slightly outsized sense of how important he is because I I think he's fantastic. Uh, so Dr. Doom is the ruler of a tiny Eastern European country called Latveria. So my podcast, The Voice of Latveria, is ostensibly a Cold War era propaganda broadcast from Latveria uh, with you know, news and features and so forth. Uh, the main feature in each episode is me interviewing a different person every time about one of the comics that has Dr. Doom in it. And we're going through in uh, not... Marvel continuity order, but the order that Dr. Doom experienced events, which is different because Dr. Doom has a time machine. (laughs) So uh, it's going through all of Doom's stories in order and ostensibly it is talking about those and really it's talking about whatever my guest feels like talking about. I think one of my favorite episodes so far, I had uh, Alex Ross on this guest, not the comics artist Alex Ross, but the classical music historian Alex Ross. And we were looking at some issue of Invaders where there's like a 
two page scene of Hitler going to see a Wagner performance. And we're like, let's talk about Wagner's music and its role in Nazi Germany. And that is what I got Alex Ross to talk about for 45 minutes. And it was amazing. That mm. sounds awesome. I'm going right after <laughs> yep. we're done, I'm going to subscribe to it. Yeah, um, thank you. That sounds awesome. The voice of Latveria. Mm-hmm. The voice of Latveria. Yeah, voice of Latveria.com is, is it. Yep. Sweet. Uh, uh, find it people and um, subscribe to it and listen to it, especially if you are into these comics like I am. Yeah. Um, see a couple other ones that really stood out to me that I just, I just wanted to touch, um, touch base with you on um, yeah. was I learned a lot about black Panther and, <laughs> and some of the big ideas that black Panther represents in the, in the Marvel universe, you know, which, um, and you kind of get this in the movies, and I haven't read any of the Black Panther um, conflicts, but just that, like, um, uh, T'Challa's main loyalty is always um, to his people, mm-hmm. to his kingdom. Right. Right. And Wakanda forever. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wakanda forever. <laughs> I got um, that movie. I got that quote from the movie. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Is there anything else? Is there anything you wanted to say about. Black Panther in particular. It's Black Panther took a while to figure out what it was about. Yeah. But what it's become is kind of a comic about government. T'Challa is a king. Yeah. When he acts in the interest of Wakanda, that is when he succeeds. When he acts in any other interest, even the interest of being a superhero, quote unquote, that is his failure. Mm. What he he is the ruler, he is the state. There is also the very big question of why the most advanced nation on earth and most technologically advanced and most socially advanced nation on earth would have a hereditary monarchy Mm. as its uh, ruling system. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, the political writer, has been writing Black Panther for the last uh, four or five years and has really kind of gone deep on that particular question Uh, but the question of what kings do what rulers do what what it means to have one's loyalty to a country and to rule a country that's a real interesting question Mm -hmm. you see it coming up in you know shakespeare's histories Mm -hmm. you see it coming up in all kinds of other kinds of historical things and Black Panther has become the vehicle for that. And I think that that's a special thing about it. Yeah. And, um, and that kind of um, goes along with some of the stuff you were talking about in the book about the dark rain series, right. Governing. Right. And you talk in the book about how um, the dark rain comics are um, one of the best works of fiction you've seen about the Donald Trump administration, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you here: the yeah. one that most accurately captures the slow grinding despair and tension of that period in American culture, and that just that hit me right yeah. in the chest. <laughs> and notably, the other yeah. half of that is that Dark Rain was published during the first year of the Obama administration. Hmm. Wow! It is like, yeah. It is a comic. It is a series of comics, uh, actually a whole kind of system of series of comics about 
what creeping totalitarianism does in mm-hmm. government. At a moment when that wasn't quite as much a thing that we had to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, but it, you know, and that's a spicy, fun. that's a spicy meatball. Ugh. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, I think you do a really good job of yeah. kind of framing that for us yeah. in, in, in your book, all the marbles. Um, I have to say, um, and I'm just going to mention it briefly. Like you talk a mm-hmm. lot and, and the, the the storylines in the series that the um, Avengers are in appear throughout the book, and they're they're um, as you say, um, they are they are the struggle for everything, right? Yeah. I, I, throughout the Marvel universe, right? They're they're involved in in very big picture ideas across. I think all of the the epics mostly, right? Um, Absolutely, yeah, and. Um, that was really probably all a lot of all of the conversation and discussion about um, the Avengers really helped me understand the Avengers, the the Marvel universe, I mm-hmm. think, and what was going on um, in the MCU and what has happened in the comics, and I'm, I just I had no idea all of that stuff was going on, and I loved learning about so, it. So here's here's two things about the Avengers. Yep. Uh, one is that they became the important thing in the MCU more or less by accident or by default, because when Marvel started making movies about stuff that it had the rights to, it had sold off the rights to the Fantastic Four long before it had sold off the rights to Spider-Man. It had sold off some Hulk rights. Um, it had sold off the rights to the X-Men. So they couldn't have that stuff. So like, what do we got? We still have most of the Avengers. Okay, we're going to do the Avengers. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the story in comics, as in movies, has always been driven by economics as much as anything else. You know, it it's n- <laughs> it is possible to retroactively decide that the Avengers stories are are the center of everything, and they've always yeah. been this important. But really, kind of, you know, they were just another thing, like mm-hmm. X Men, Spider Man always outsold them mm. uh which is it's it's an yeah. interesting thing um why did Mar- why did marvel sell off all of those characters yeah why'd they do that uh they needed money mm. they thought it would be great to have some movies for pr- promotional reasons like did you ever see that arrested development sequence where uh somebody discovers that they've got uh like two weeks to make a fantastic four movie or the rights are going to revert to uh to Marvel? No. Did you do you remember? Jen is uh, yeah, the big. You didn't watch the rest of the film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, I don't remember um, the storyline. To, to buy a sense of making a Fantastic Four musical. Ah, uh, right, um, right, right. <laughs> that is based on something that actually happened. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, Marvel had sold an option on the Fantastic Four, and the deal was that within seven years of when it was sold, uh, a Fantastic Four movie had to be in production or the rights would revert, which is why Roger Corman made a Fantastic Four movie with a budget of $1 million. Oh my God. Uh, it may have been shown in a movie theater once. It may never have been shown in a movie theater at all. Mm. Uh, there are copies that circulate on bootleg, but like it was literally a like, we have a month, let's make a Fantastic Four movie. Have you uh, Have you seen that movie? I have not. Okay. <laughs> not. I think I remember reading about that somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to... Yeah, no. Oh, go ahead. 
uh, like FF and Spider-Man and X-Men rights. Like they sold off for a song at the point when they could really use the money. And so that was what they had to work with. The other thing about the Avengers is how the Avengers came to be. And this may be an apocryphal story. Tom Brevoort, who's an executive editor at Marvel, has posted a couple of things on this blog recently that, that may mean the story isn't true. But uh, so this is a print the myth situation. You shouldn't quote me on this is truth. But uh, in early 1964, the new book that Stanley and Jack Kirby were going to be doing was X-Men. And the other book that was going to come out then was Daredevil. Hmm. And Bill Everett was so late drawing the first issue of Daredevil that it got to the point where we're going to be sending something to press in a week. We have a spot reserved in press in a week. We don't have a finished book. Jack Kirby, help. What can we do? And Stan and Jack, like, okay, we can take all the characters who don't have their own series right now. So like the Hulk and giant man and Iron Man and putting together in one story. And (laughs) over the weekend, Avengers number one was, was dropped by Jack Kirby. Wow. Again, this might be apocryphal, but it's a great legend. Yeah. That's crazy. Especially viewed through um, the lens of hindsight. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Avengers are the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. They're huge. I love the Avengers. Um, I have to tell you, I learned about a new character reading your book, and it was mm-hmm. my... I've never read a single comic with this character, but they may be my favorite character just about reading about them, and it is the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Squirrel Girl! Yeah. Um, I love her. Yeah, and I I absolutely loved reading... Um, all the different summaries of Squirrel Girl's journey and why um, why that character is so unique. Um, and, and it's my interpretation was that um, she uses nonviolent um, conflict resolution and friendship in squirrels as a superpower, <laughs> you know, mostly. Pretty, pretty much. I mean, she'll kick yeah. your ass if she has to. Uh. Yeah. Um, but it, it's more... Um, you know, there's there's no problem that can't be worked through, right? Yeah. Um, by by talking and friendship. Yeah, um, she's she's incredibly good at creative nonviolent conflict resolution. Like she really wants to make sure that everybody's needs get met, and you know, find out what what's actually motivating them and what they actually need, and ends up befriending Craven the Hunter. And Galactus. Yep. She makes friends with Galactus because that's what Squirrel Girl does. And and I love <laughs> I love her solution for dealing, I'm not gonna spoil it, for dealing with Doctor Doom. Um <laughs> and I, I've and that that made me say, okay, I want to go read this comic. Mm-hmm. Like that so that will be the next one I go read. Okay. I was just so so taken yeah. so taken with this character the, the the ryan north erica henderson squirrel girl series that uh ran from i think i want to say 2012 or 20 2013 might be 2015 onward 2015 yeah 2015 to like 2020 like that's it's it is just a joy and it's hysterically funny and it's super sweet and yeah i love it's it to good. pieces what was the uh, you were going to tell us about uh, the soft serve 
Oh, a character called Soft Serve in Marvel. Yes, and which, indeed. Um, watch out, Marvel. We're going to get our team of lawyers after Oh, my you. gosh. Yeah. No, we don't have um, any lawyers, by the way. So, so Soft Serve has, has appeared in comics. She has not been named in comics. Uh, there is an artist named Bob Quinn who has recently been drawing one of the X-Men titles, Way of X. And Bob Quinn did a sketch a few years ago that I think he posted on uh, Tumblr somewhere of a, a new mutant character called uh, Soft Serve, and just drew, drew this uh, like spunky young woman saying, "Like, no, Professor Xavier, you know what I do? I poop ice cream. <laughs> oh God, I poop ice cream better than anyone. Oh my God!" And, and so that Soft Serve was her name, uh, and so he's been drawing Wave X and. Drew a crowd scene a few issues ago where there's just very, very, very tiny in the background. Soft serve is offering a cone to somebody in the background who's just recoiling. Oh, oh God. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's like the squatty potty commercials. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Um, the other chapter of your book that I loved, and it wasn't because it was the last. I loved the whole book. I, I did love the whole book. If it's a, if that's not obvious, um, I'm so glad you talk about um, trying to pass along your love of Marvel comics to your son um, yeah. Sterling, um, mm-hmm. and you describe very beautifully um, how you kind of found a way into the mountain of Marvels, right? That met Sterling where he was at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to engage his interests. And I was just wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about that experience for you. Cause it was, it was, be- it was beautifully written and mm, thank you. I want, I want um, other people to hear about it. I mean, he's, he and I had always looked at comics together, but you know, he has no, in- he had no interest in superhero comics. Like that's, which fine. Like there's, plenty of other kinds of comics that we could bond over that I was figured, okay, this is my thing. It's not going to be his thing. And then I got invited to teach a class on the history of American superhero comics. And I put together PowerPoint for it. And he was like, Oh, can I see that? And I said, sure. And then he saw that like, Oh, it's all about drawing these lines between these different things. This is a system. Mm. And that's the thing that his particular mind glommed onto just the way that parts of the story all connect to each other and speak to each other in their moment and across decades. And that is what he discovered he liked. And that was his way into it. And, you know, we still read, we still read comics together as a family all the time. We read like an issue every night together. That's yeah. That's That's our thing. That's awesome. I got to throw that out there. Um, Douglas, the book is done. It's out there. People can read it. Um, it is. What what comics are you still reading? Are you are you are you? Are you, <laughs> I, I'm, are you burnt I, out. I assume you're not trying to follow every single thread anymore. I mean, I'm keeping up with an awful lot of them. Like I said, like all of pretty much all the X titles right now, like the the X Men books. There's a book from 2019 called House of X, Powers of X that uh, kind of set off this whole whole line of like there's 10 or 12 different titles that are all running right now. So I'm following all of those right now. Um, there's uh, the current Guardians of the Galaxy series is written by this guy, Al Ewing, who's just absolutely brilliant. And I've been enjoying that a lot. Um, there are a lot of 
non-Marvel comics that I still read and love. And Love and Rockets is all-time G-O-A-T, just absolutely the best thing. Uh, One of my great loves in comics is the British Judge Dredd comics, um, which are published in a weekly series called 2000 AD that's been running since 1977. So there's like a couple thousand issues so far. I actually wrote a Judge Dredd miniseries about six years ago uh, that came out in America um, called Mega City 2, which is mostly about how much I hate L.A. Uh, <laughs> is that where you live? Uh, no, I live in Portland. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Portland, Oregon, yeah. But uh, it, it's, it's about my, I should say, my really uncomfortable relationship with Los Angeles and turning that into a science fiction cop story, basically. Oh, wow. Um, uh, but the, the the Judge Dredd stories are really wonderful, and th- there is one writer who has not been writing it all the time, been writing it about 60% of the time since the very beginning, and the stories have been published over you know 45 or so years and take place over 45 or so years. So we have gotten to see these characters age in real time, and the political landscape of the world that he lives in radically and horribly transformed. And that's, that is one of my all time faves. Um, And actually like my favorite uh, comic I read this year, that new Alison Bechdel book, uh, the secret to superhuman strength, which is her memoir of her history with physical fitness obsessions. uh, It's just absolutely stunning she's the she's the person the cartoonist who did fun home and are you my mother and so i mean her great subject as a cartoonist is herself and there are very few people who can do three books about themselves that are absolutely riveting but allison bechtel has done it i feel like i heard an interview with her somewhere on npr or on a podcast somewhere i'm sure yeah yeah i mean fun home is fun home is amazing if you've if you've never seen that it is that's her book from, I guess, about 12 years or so ago about growing up in a funeral home with her closeted gay dad who killed himself for reasons she's never really understood and just kind of diving into her personal history that oh way. Oh my God. Okay. It's called Fun it Home? Fun Home, uh, as in fu- short for funeral home. Yeah. And uh, it was it's a, it's a musical on Broadway now. Oh, crazy. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to pick that up. That sounds like that's right up my alley. Yeah, Um, for sure. Okay. um, We're going to transition into our last um, two questions. Um, uh, So what, um, before I do that though, I can hear stomping Jen. It's reminding me to ask you, um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure we touched on? Um, I'm good. This is delightful. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. Um, it yep. was it was great great talking with you. I think you could have talked to him for another. Five I know. Hours. I'm I'm looking. I'm looking. We at are the, already over the time limit that we said set out for ourselves. I'm looking at the <laughs> clock and realizing we've gone an hour forty five, and I could, and I feel like I'm cutting myself short. So okay. w- maybe we can have you back and we can dive even deeper or something at some point. Um. um okay. So. Um, Okay, so when you're not reading, thanks, Stomping Jen, comics, yeah, and writing about them, or working, like what do you like to do to connect with yourself, get recentered, kind of just get back to Douglas? So my my little vice that I indulge in is Logic Puzzle magazines. 
Huh. Hmm. Like the cheap newsprint, like Dell logic puzzles. Like I'll, when when I'm stressed out, I'll pull out one of those and just solving that for 10 minutes like that. That centers me. Yeah. Cool. You well, like you like those logic puzzle things. Uh, I like uh, the New York Times spelling bee. Also uh, playing ukulele. Ukulele oh, playing is the other thing I do. Nice. Uh, I, you can't see it on the podcast, but I'm holding up my invisible Ooh. ukulele. Oh, that's awesome. That's pretty. Is that electric? Does that have a? Uh, no, it is. It is a. Uh, it is a transparent plastic uke. That's so cute. It's a real thing. Yeah. Nice. Can you play any um, no. uh, comic book hero <laughs> theme songs on that? Oh, good Lord. Uh, no, I do have a song about X-Men that I made a little video for. I'll send you a link to that. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll cool. put it in the show notes. Okay. Awesome. That would be awesome. Um, right. um, what was I? Oh, I had a question I wanted to ask. Oh, I was just going to mention, we have a friend who uh, collects ukuleles. ukuleles. Yeah. 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 Um, she has like 10, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah, they're so varied. I had no idea they were so... Um, broad in their spectrum of color spectrum of construction stuff yeah all right yeah um okay last question and we ask this of everyone who comes on the podcast um you can interpret it any way you want um you can have no you can have no answer you can have a long answer um what have you experienced that you cannot explain I know that's coming. I know that's coming out of left field. Yeah, it is coming out of left field. One of the experience that I cannot explain. Okay, here's uh, my favorite story about this. Okay. Uh, in college, I had a roommate uh, with whom I had some communication difficulties. Um, We've all we been did there. Not, we did not get along terribly well, uh, and I had to walk through his room to get to our suite's bathroom. And I was DJing at the radio station at, at uh, that point and doing a lot of late night shifts. So I'd have to come back late at night. One night I came back and discovered that the doorknob to our room was missing. Hmm. He had removed the doorknob. However, it just happened that day that I had been out on campus, the other side of campus and seen a doorknob lying on the ground and thought, huh, a doorknob. I better p- pick that up and put it in my backpack. You never know when it might come in useful. Oh my God. Huh. It was not my doorknob, but it was a doorknob <laughs> and it worked and it opened the door and I went in and went through his room to get to the bathroom. And when I came out again, he was like, how did you do that? Oh my God. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that is the thing I've experienced that I cannot explain. That's so funny. The universe let me do that, Buster. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, You're so welcome. All right. Stomping Jen. Yes. Um, Douglas Wolk. Yes. Author of All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told, available on Penguin. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for talking with us. Um, yes, this I, I I told Stomping Jen I was so excited. I know because I love this super stuff. Excited um, to talk to you, and we could talk more and we could talk more, but we can't. But uh, yeah, people have time right. restrictions. Yes, that we need um, to be uh, savvy too. <laughs> and so, um, Douglas, thank you. Um, um, I want to encourage people to find Douglas. Um, get get the book. Get all of the Marvels. 
uh, find Douglas's podcast, The Voice of Latveria. Okay, um, find that, subscribe to it. Okay, download, listen to the episodes. Um, I have a list here. I'm desperately searching for it. You can find Douglas other places too. You can find you can find him on the web. He has a website, uh, douglaswolk.com. There's an Instagram for all of the Marvels. Okay, Great. it's at all of the Marvels. Uh, Douglas is on Twitter um, at Douglas Wolk there, and the book. Get the book. You've heard me say it a million times already on this podcast. I loved this book. I um, love the book. I don't it, think you love the book. <laughs> I mean, really, I, it was. I don't know how you did it from reading twenty-seven thousand comics to um, writing this book, but it. I. I think people are going to love this thing. So, um, thanks for talking about it with us. Um, okay. You're so welcome. Thank you. All right. Um, Douglas, we have a tradition here when we end. We just like to go around. We didn't say goodbye to our listeners. Oh, well. You're like, he's like so enraptured in this conversation. Uh, Stomping Jet, help get. So, help I'm going to tell our listeners that we yes. love them because I remembered them. I wrote Stomping Jet and. I slipped her a note, actually. No, That's what happened. there was okay. no note slipped. Anyways, we right. love you. No. So if you like this episode and all of our episodes, share. Yep. Tell a friend about us. Uh, subscribe, download, download. Leave, leave us, us a re- review. Leave us a review on this Apple Podcasts, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we love reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now we have now? a tradition okay. where we say goodbye to people. All right. Um, <laughs> Douglas, I have permission to end the podcast. Um, So uh, what we like to do, we like to just go around and say bye now. Now, our last one we recorded, I went last. So, um, oh, yeah, we'll let we'll let Douglas go last. Stomping Jen. I'm going to go first. Okay. And we'll let excellent. We'll let the author of all of the Marvels. um, We'll let his goodbye ring in our listeners ears as we go out. Okay. I could see that look on your face. She's like, hurry up, please. (laughs) So, all right. um, Everybody, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Bye now. Bye now. Bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 